everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. In this podcast, I want to tell you another story from the Odyssey. As you might recall in the last podcast, I shared Book 10, which is the book in which Odysseus and his men end up visiting the nymph goddess sorceress Circe. And at the very end, Circe tells Odysseus that he's got to go to the underworld because he needs the advice of Tiresias, the blind seer, in order to get home. And this seemed like a little bit of a cliffhanger. It certainly was for me. So I went back to the Odyssey to read book 11, and I think it's only fair that I share it with you. (laughs) So a little bit more about book 10 to refresh your memory. Odysseus and his men are reduced to only one ship after their disastrous visit to the island of the Lestragonians, and they take refuge at the island of Ai, which turns out to be the home of the goddess nymph turned sorceress Circe. When they first arrive, she turns the men into swine. Odysseus escapes this fate with the aid of the god Hermes, who gives him the plant Molly to eat. And because Odysseus eats the plant, Circe's spells don't work. She invites him to make love with her, and thus they then establish a bond. Circe then agrees to turn the men back into their human form, and interestingly enough, they all emerge in much better shape, stronger and more handsome and younger than they were before her transformation. Odysseus and the men linger, enjoying Circe's hospitality, especially Odysseus, who is her lover, for a year, at which point the men insist that they resume their journey back to Ithaca. Circe lets them go willingly, but she tells Odysseus that he must journey to the underworld first and speak to Tiresias. She gives him instructions for the journey, and the men set off with heavy hearts, full of fear, because this is not a journey, (laughs) obviously, that mortals make. Now, as I mentioned last time, Odysseus's journey and adventures take place outside the known world. His is an inner journey, and his trip to the underworld reinforces this understanding. The underworld is that other world that exists simultaneously with this one. It's common to say under, but it could also be parallel, the invisible world that is behind or coexisting with this one, even within us. For the Greeks, the underworld was on the edge. It was beyond the world of the living, on the other side of the river that encircled the earth. Little grew there, 
it, nothing really could live there because the sun couldn't shine that far. The underworld is imagined as a place. But what this means in the context of these stories, metaphorically, is a shift in perspective. When we go to the underworld, we are seeing things from the other side, viewing life from the perspective of death, seeing the present through the lens of the past, because the underworld is the place of memory. And one of the tasks is to embrace the power and reality of memory and understand how that connects the dead with the living and the past with the present. We note that the center of the Odyssey is Odysseus's descent to the underworld. And I want to invite you, as I tell this story, to listen for this call to remember. Listen for the call to remember, and as always, note what grabs your attention as I tell the story. That is your opening into the story right now. And it certainly seems like many of us are feeling underworld aspects, seeing that collectively and also experiencing that in our personal lives. There's a lot going on right now. (laughs) Um, A call to the depths to reflect. For many of us are having trouble getting things finished, experiencing setbacks, you know, in this quote-unquote unproductive time in the terms of the daily above-world life, our common existence. Uh, Maybe we're all being called to take a step into the underworld where reflection, remembering, and reevaluation are possible. One final comment before I get to the story. May I also recall that Odysseus is telling his story to King Alcinous and his court. It's the first time that Odysseus is absorbing and making meaning out of his experience. He is remembering in creating this narrative. And now on with the story. This is book 11, Achilles and the Underworld, and my paraphrase is based on Robert Fagel's translation. Sitting in the fine halls of the Phaeacian king, Alcinous, Odysseus continued his story. We set sail from Circe's island with the black ram and you and heavy hearts, he said. Circe gave us a favorable wind, and we sailed smoothly all day until the sun sank and the roads of the world grew dark. At last we came to the outer limits of the earth, to the river ocean that bounds the world. Here lived the Samaritans a wretched and miserable people in a land of perpetual mist and darkness. The sun cannot shine that far. We beached our tall ship and walked to the spot that Circe directed. Here I dug a trench about a forearm's depth, and all around it poured libations out to the dead. First milk and honey, then wine, and water last. I sprinkled this with barley and vowed to all the dead over and over as I completed this rite that I would make another sacrifice 
when I returned to my shining halls in Ithaca. Then I cut the throats of the ram and the ewe, and let their blood flow into the trench. At once the dead began to appear. Bodiless ghosts by the thousands, the shades of brides and unwed youths, of old men and men of war still dressed in their bloody armor. Terror gripped me, and I quickly burned the bodies of the ram and the ewe and offered prayers to the goddess Persephone and the dread god of death, her husband. And then I sat down with my sharp sword in my hand to wait for Tiresias to appear. All of the dead ghosts crowded around, but I fiercely guarded the blood. No one was allowed to drink until I had questioned Tiresias. But in their midst, I saw Elpinor, the unlucky young man who broke his neck just before we set sail. I wept to see him down there, and I asked him, How did you get down to these halls of darkness? Odysseus, he said, too much wine was my ruin. I went to sleep on the roof of Circe's house. But when I heard all the commotion in the yard that morning, I forgot where I was. And I just, I fell and broke my neck. My soul flew down to this place. I beg you, please, Odysseus, go back to Ai-Ai and give me a proper burial. Don't leave me unwept and unsung. Build my funeral pyre high and burn me in my full armor, then plant my oar on my tomb. Then men will learn my story and remember me. I promised him that I would do as he asked. Then the ghost of my dear mother, Anticlea, came. It broke my heart to see her among the shades, but I did not let her come close either. At last, the famous prophet Tiresias appeared. He knew me and said, Odysseus, royal son of Laertes, man of pain, what brings you down here to the land of the dead? Stand back and let me drink the blood, and I will tell you all the truth. When he had drunk, he turned to me and said, Hmm, you want a smooth journey home, Odysseus? But Poseidon will make it very hard for you. He is angry because you blinded his son, the Cyclops. But you and your crew may still make it back to Ithaca, suffering all the way if you can curb your wild desires. When you come to Threnatia, that island, it's going to be very difficult because you will see the fine, fat flocks of cattle that belong to Helios, god of the sun. You must remember that he sees and hears all things and leave his cattle unharmed. Keep your mind set on home. Remember your goal. If you don't, and I can see it now, your ship will be destroyed. And even if you make it home, you will come home late, a broken man, alone on a stranger's ship. And you will find a lot of pain at home, men like locusts devouring your goods and wooing your wife. You can kill them, clear your halls, and set this right, but then you must go forth once more 
Tiresias said, and carry an oar inland until you come to a race of people who know nothing of the sea or of ships. You'll know that you have come far enough when a fellow traveler calls your oar a winnowing fan for grain. There you must plant your balanced oar into the earth and sacrifice a ram, a bull, and a wild boar to Poseidon, lord of the sea. Then you may go home, Odysseus, for good, and live until a ripe old age and a gentle death will claim you. Tiresias, I said, this is surely a fate spun out by the gods. But tell me one more thing. There is my mother, crouching close in silence. How can I make her remember that I am her son? Let her drink the blood, he told me. Anyone you allow to drink the blood will tell you the truth, and any you refuse will turn and fade away. Then the prophet strode back to the house of death. I motioned my mother to come near. She drank the blood and looked at me and wailed, My son, you are still alive. You are still alive, but but why are you here among the shades? Have you been home to Ithaca yet? I had to come here to consult with Tiresias, I told her, and I have not set foot on Ithaca since I first sailed to Troy with Agamemnon. But tell me, mother, what happened to you? And how is my dear wife, Penelope? Is she waiting for me, or has she remarried? Surely she is still waiting for you, suffering endlessly as you do, Anticlea said. Telemachus still holds your estates in peace. Your father has gone to his farm and sees no one. He sleeps with the servants, wraps his body in rags, and grieves your absence. I met with that same fate, and I died of grief, longing for your return, my son. It broke my heart to hear this, and I longed to embrace her. Three times I tried, and every time she dissolved in my arms. Why didn't you wait for me, mother, I said. How I long to hold you, but you slip away. Are you just a shade sent by Persephone to torture me? No, 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 my mother answered. This is the way it is for mortals when we die and lose our flesh and bones. But remember all of these things and go quickly now, so one day you can tell your wife. Then Persephone sent before me, a great parade of women. Women who had been the wives and mothers of princes. They swarmed around the blood, and I looked for a way to question each one alone. I made them wait and take turns, and thus I heard their stories. I saw Tyro, who once fell in love with the river god, Enipius, and followed his glinting streams until one day the earth-shaker Poseidon saw her. Taking the shape of her beloved, The god made love to her, and she bore him the mighty kings Peleus and Neleos. The sons she gave her mortal husband were also great. I saw Antiope, who lay with Zeus and bore the gods Amphion and Zethus, builders of the city of Thebes. I saw Alcmenina, who also merged with Zeus and brought forth Heracles. I could never tell you the names of all the honorable and famous women I saw in that place. 
And now, Alcinius, I'm tired, and I want to go to sleep. Well, everyone in the hall was spellbound by his tale. They sat in silence until Queen Ariti said, Phaeacians, how does this man impress you? We are all honored by his presence and must make sure he leaves laden with fine gifts. The others agreed, and Alcinous declared, As much as our guest longs for passage home, we must keep him until tomorrow, so we have time to assemble his whole array of parting gifts. Odysseus tactfully agreed and said, Alcinous, shining king, if you urged me, I would stay a whole year to collect your lordly gifts. The more riches I carry when I arrive home, the greater respect I will receive. You are an honest man, Odysseus, said Alcinous, and you have a way with words. You tell your story with all a singer's skill, and I could listen all night. Indeed, this night seems endless. So tell me, truly, did you meet any of the fallen heroes from Troy in the House of Death? Don't conclude your story just yet, but tell us of all your pains. All right, said Odysseus, if you insist, I will tell you more of my troubles and those of my comrades. When the women left, the first to come to me was Agamemnon, and he remembered me as soon as he drank the blood. Tears sprang to his eyes, and I asked him how he came to be there. The great man was alive when we left Troy. He told me the terrible tale of bitter betrayal, how he was slaughtered like an ox by Aegethus and his own accursed wife, Clytemnestra, at the feast they held to welcome him home. I died a wretched death, he told me, and my men were killed without mercy, like white-tusked boars for a wedding or a public feast. The worst was the murder of my dear Cassandra, Priam's daughter, who I brought home as booty from Troy. Clytemnestra, my treacherous queen, killed her over my body and left us both lying with blank open eyes staring on the floor. There is nothing more monstrous or shameful than a woman who plots to kill her own husband. I agreed with him, said Odysseus, and told him that Zeus has hated his house, the race of Atreus, and relied on the wiles of women to bring them down. Just look at the carnage caused by Helen. True, said Agamemnon's ghost. So even your own wife, Penelope, shouldn't be trusted completely. She is Helen's cousin. Of course, she won't kill you. She is much too steady her feelings too deep. But take care, Odysseus. Now, tell me, you will see your son Telemachus, who has grown up in the years away. What do you know of my son, Prince Orestes? I was murdered before I got to see him again. But, unfortunately, I had no news of Orestes to share with Agamemnon. We wept together, and then the ghost of Achilles, Patroclus, Antilochus and Ajax came near. The great Achilles remembered me right away and said, Odysseus, man of tactics, reckless friend, what daring has brought you down to the house of death where the senseless wraiths of mortals make their home? I am here to consult Tiresias, I told him, 
to get advice for the journey home. I haven't made it back to Ithaca yet. I've had nothing but trouble. But you, Achilles, why, there's not a man in the world more blessed. We honored you as a god when you were alive. And I see that you are still the powerful lord down here. I tried to reassure the ghost, but he would have none of it. Don't give any winning words about death to me, shining Odysseus, said Achilles. By God, I'd rather slave on earth for another man, some dirt-poor tenant farmer who scrapes to keep alive, than rule down here over all the breathless dead. But tell me about my son, Neoptolemus. Did he make it to Troy, and was he a champion? And tell me about my noble father, Peleus. Is he still ruling and receiving the respect that he deserves, now that I am not there to fight by his side? I told him that I knew nothing of Peleus, but that Neoloptimus had indeed made it to Troy. I brought him there myself, and he was a brave champion. He fought with the courageous fury of his father and cut down many men. He was in the Trojan horse and never showed a flicker of fear or shed a single tear. And when the war was over, he went home, weighed down with booty without a single scratch on him. Satisfied, the great Achilles went loping across the fields of Asphodel, triumphant in the glory of his gallant son. Now the rest of the ghosts came swarming round. I tried to talk to Ajax, but he was still angry that I was awarded Achilles' armor and stalked off, carrying that grudge. I let him go. Then I saw Minos and Orion. I saw Tantalus suffering the endless torture of sweet fruit and water that stayed just out of reach of his parched lips and hungry stomach. I saw Sisyphus struggle to roll that huge boulder up the hill, only to see it teeter time and time again and roll back down to the plain. I caught a glimpse of the ghost of Heracles. The man himself still lives with the gods on Mount Olympus. His shade only is in the underworld. Royal son of Laertes, he said, Odysseus, man famed for exploits. What brings you down here? Have the gods saddled you with the same dual fate that I bear? Although I was the son of Zeus, I was tormented by Hera and had to come down here to claim the monstrous hound of Cerberus. I succeeded, too, as you might recall, although a part of me remains here. No, I said, I hope to return in one piece from this journey. Then Heracles left, and there were others I had hoped to see, but suddenly the dead crowded around me. In the face of their numbers, a deep terror gripped me. I was suddenly afraid of what the dread goddess Persephone might send up next, and rushed back to my ship. We cast off immediately and rowed out onto the strong tide of the ocean river till we caught a fresh wind that sailed us back to Ai and Circe, where we would bury Elpinor and preserve his memory as he requested. And this is where we're going to leave Odysseus for now. 
The ritual that he performs with blood and sacrifice and the trip down to the underworld, the Greeks called these things nekia. Nekia. This was the way that the ghosts were called up and questioned about the future. And it also meant the journey to the underworld. And there were several sites in Greece, caverns or places where a river ran underground, that were dedicated to this practice. We know that it existed for some time. This reference in Homer's Book 11 is the earliest in recorded history. C.G. Jung described the Nekia as the dark journey of the soul, by which one descends into one's own inner underworld to confront the darkest fears. When we make that underworld journey, dark and light are joined, and the journeyer, according to Jung, emerges whole and healed from the cave of initiation. Obviously, the Odyssey is millennia (laughs) before depth psychology, but this idea that we have to go down and confront what we're afraid of, and that in that confrontation, in the meeting of the light of our living consciousness and the darkness of the unconscious, of the underworld, of the world of memory, the shade of what has happened, that there's a healing union there. Uh, I find that really interesting. And uh, in particular, that Odysseus meets the, his fallen comrades. He meets the heroes who died at Troy. And one of the themes in the Odyssey is what it takes for those surviving warriors to come to terms with the long years that they spent at war and kind of get over their PTSD, to use a contemporary term, so that they can go back home. In his book, War and the Soul, Ed Tick, who does a lot of work with the Odyssey and war vets who are having problems integrating back into our uh, peacetime societies. He talks about the need for vets to face the dead, to face their dead friends and those memories and accept the difference in their fates, accept that some very good people die and others live in order to be reconciled. Now, Circe tells Odysseus that the journey must be made that he has to go where mortals do not and see what mortals do not and learn something. Now, I wonder if it's about what is revealed because he really doesn't do all that much down there. And, you know, he learns that about the death of his mother. He learns that Penelope's not there. He learns the fate of Agamemnon and gets that warning to be wary when he gets back home. But when he goes back to Circe's island in the next book, what you discover is that she repeats much of what Tiresias told him. So it almost seems redundant, but suggests, I think, that the experience itself is transformative and valuable. The act of remembering and honoring the past is essential to moving into the future. Now, one thing that I often talk about on this program is heroes and heroics. And so I want to note that Achilles, the great hero, 
whose whole fate was the quest for honor. And he dies in the process. <laughs> you note that Achilles says that dying for honor wasn't worth it. He'd rather be alive. He would rather be alive. Although he does take great satisfaction in the story of the honor collected by his son. And then we have, um, you know, all of these women, the mothers and the wives of the heroes down there, and everybody's down there. We see that everybody is down there, all dead, the heroes, the disreputable, the women, whatever they were in life, whatever they were doing, they're all dead. And then there's also the theme of the stories, the stories being told. If your story's told, you are remembered. You know, for the Greeks, the Greeks thought the underworld was a place of wealth and that Pluto, which was the common name for Hades, was a god of great wealth. And you have this sense that the underworld was the Greek treasure house of myth, where all of the myths and stories that are common property of the Greeks, their shared heritage, live. If you are there in the underworld and you are remembered by the living, and have your story told, well, that is the best that you can do. And we note that Elpener asks for them to go back and bury him, sing his song, and leave a marker so that he will be remembered. Somehow, this idea that the value of life is best grasped when we are remembering and honoring the past, that that action is an important way to keep perspective, to keep awareness of what matters most. Somehow that feels very relevant for these tumultuous times. Wherever you may be in your underworld journey, (laughs) I hope that you will accept the invitation of this time to do some reflecting and remembering of your own. When everything is changing, it's essential that we keep track of what matters most. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. I hope you'll share Myth in the Mojave with friends and family who might be interested in it. And if you are finding value here, maybe you will join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs archived there, free downloads of everything new as I create it, and you play a very important role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time, and until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.